We're in part uh, we're part four of our series called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and we're halfway through the series. I can't believe it. I know it's been a blessing to many of you, as it has been for me. Uh, before we dive in, I want to share a story with you. You may have heard the story of a Montana man in 2022. He went on a fishing excursion in the middle of nowhere. The area that he went fishing was called Fish Trap Creek on the Big Hole River in Montana. Basically, that means it was in the middle of nowhere. No one knows where that is. And he's there on this fishing trip, and he needed to use the toilet. I know, you didn't expect to come to church and hear about a toilet, but here we are. And he needs to use a toilet, but it's because it's in the middle of nowhere. They don't have toilets. They have what you call latrines. If you don't know what a latrine is, it's kind of like a porta potty There's a big difference between a porta potty and a latrine. A porta potty you go, and the waste goes into a bin or a container. A latrine, it's very fascinating, I learned this in my studies this past week, a latrine, you go and all the waste goes into a pit in the ground. So this man is on a fishing excursion, he uses the latrine, he drops his phone into the pit. It's a real story. Now here's the thing, there's nothing on my phone. I have my kids' photos, baby photos, I have sermon illustration notes messages, all sorts of things on my phone. There is nothing that is going to make me dig through some doo-doo to get my phone back. Nothing. But this man, he must have had something so important on his phone, so he strips his clothes off, takes off the toilet, and dives in. Here's the best part. He gets stuck in it. He gets stuck in the latrine for three hours until the next person comes. And the worst part about it is he never found his phone. It was all for a waste. He got stuck, and a lot of times we get stuck in life, and this man, we would say, it's poetic justice. He deserved to be stuck, right? We all can all agree he deserved to be stuck in that latrine. I don't know what you were thinking. But there are moments in life that you and I, we get stuck, but we don't typically deserve it. It may not be because, it may be something that's out of our own control. You know, we get stuck in different places. You get stuck in traffic. If you've been in San Antonio for more than one day, you've been stuck in traffic. We get stuck um, in lines in the grocery store. Some of you maybe feel like you're stuck at a job that you have right now. Some of us get stuck in conversations, not at church, but other places. We get stuck in different ways in life. But this is also true of our spiritual journey with Jesus. There are moments in our life, in our journey with God, where we get stuck. Now, here's what stuck really means. If I walk towards this wall and I can no longer make any more progress, that's, that means that I'm stuck at the wall. And that's what it means for us spiritually. We come to a place in our journey with Jesus where we feel like we're not making any sort of process, uh, uh, any sort of progress. And so today in our message, we're going to dive into what it means for us to hit the wall and to journey through the wall with God. The first thing that we have to understand is that it is a journey. From this moment forward to the moment that you breathe your last breath, you are not trying to get to a singular spiritual destination, but all of us are on a journey with God. You may have heard it said that perfection is not a destination, it's a journey. And this is especially true when it comes to our walk with God. Every single day we strive to put off our old man and put on the new creation that God has called us to be by not trusting in our works, but by trusting in what Jesus has done for us. And so we go on this journey. And Robert Gulick, he's a professor out of Fuller Theological Seminary, and he put together the stages of our journey in his book, In the Critical Journey. Stages of faith that we walk through in this life. And this is my adaptation of his work. And so here's what it oftentimes looks like. There are these stages that we walk through as Christians. The first stage that you might hit is that you discover Jesus. The first stage is what I call discovering Jesus. This is the part of our lives where we come to know God. 
It's exciting. This may be as a child, this may be as an adult. Some of you may be here and you haven't gone through that stage and that's okay. We're just glad that you're here. Others of you have gone through that stage through this church this, uh, this year. But in this stage, there is this natural awareness of God and sense of our need for God. You experience this greater meaning and purpose in life at this stage. This stage reminds us of how big God is and how fickle you and I can be as human beings. From that stage, you move on to a stage of becoming an apprentice of Jesus. Now, this is where you begin to learn. You're absorbing the information. You're watching all the messages, the podcasts. You're reading, all the, uh, you're reading the Bible as much as you can, reading all the blogs online. This is the part where you're eager to learn. And you feel very secure in your faith at this point. The next step that you might step into is a stage of doing for Jesus. This is the active stage of following God. You begin serving, you begin doing, you're active, you're in groups, you're attending church, you're talking about your faith with other people. This is where you check off your spiritual goals. At one point you knew you had spiritual goals, but now you begin to check it off because you know you're supposed to do all these things. I've done my readings, I've done my participation, I've, done, I've attended church, I'm all in. All your chips are on the table at this point in your faith journey with Jesus. But what Gulick proposes, and I agree with, is at some point in our journey with Christ, typically around this stage, we hit what we call a wall. A wall. And I'll explain in a little bit what a wall is, but this is the part of our journey where we start to question some of the things that we believed before because we've begun to hit this wall. We feel stuck. We feel like we're not making progress we begin to ask some difficult questions. Much of what we learn in the first few stages kind of goes out the window. Doubts creep in, questions creep in. Now for us to get through the wall, we have to enter into this new stage called starting to let go. This is a stage where you look inward. The stage where we not only ask difficult questions, but you process those difficult questions with God. This is what it ultimately means to go beneath the surface, the surface level iceberg and go beneath to the 90%. After that stage, you finally let go and you enter this life of surrender, your surrender to Jesus. This stage you do everything you've always done for Jesus, but this time out of a heart that knows that life can be a mystery, that pain and trials produce something greater in us. There's this fresh focus, it's this calm stage where you're not burned out by doing for Jesus because you're doing for Jesus is sustained by being with Jesus. There's this inner stillness. You ever meet people that whatever life throws their way, there's this inner stillness when it comes to their spiritual journey. They've lived a life of surrendering to Jesus. The final stage is what we call a life of loving God and others. You've heard me say this many times, but everything that we do as Christians is an extension of what Jesus has done for us. Mercy, grace, love, generosity, forgiveness, patience. What Jesus has extended to us, we are not only recipients of that, but we are to extend that to the people that he has placed around us. At this stage, you're doing that with a heart that's full you're humble, you're wise, you're deeply compassionate. There's no fear of pain, there's no fear of anxiety or disappointments or trauma. There's not even any fear of death because you're completely content with God's plan for your life. This is the stage where I feel the Apostle Paul was when he said, for me to die is gain because he understands the beauty of trusting in God. Now it's important for us to take a step back and look at these stages of our faith, not because we're gonna dive into every stage, but so that we can recognize at some point in your walk with Jesus, you are going to hit a wall. Some of you have hit that wall. Others of you are going through that wall right now. If you haven't hit it and you're not going through it, you're going to hit it at some point. It is inevitable. I grew up in New York and I love the fall season in New York. It's my favorite time of the year. But I know that after the fall comes the winter. 
where the leaves fall out and the trees are all uh, dry and the snow comes and the slush comes and the blizzard comes. I know it's coming. And just like seasons come and go, we have to understand that walls come and go. Now with these stages, one stage is not more important than the other stage. It's important for us to understand. For me, in my walk with Jesus, I've hit several walls along my journey. And many times I've had to go back to discovering Jesus, which is stage one, and remembering why I put my trust in Jesus, remembering my first love and what he called me to. So one stage is not more important than the other stage, but every stage builds upon the other one, just like we do in the physical world. You think of a child, a baby that's born and it's attached to its mother, begins to crawl and then begins to walk and then develops some of those muscles and then grows into a toddler and then a teenager and then an adult man and woman. It's important. One stage is not more important than the other stage. Every stage is essential to the functioning of us becoming adults. And so let's talk a little bit this morning about what that wall is and what it might practically look like. A wall is very different than a trial that you might face on a day-to-day basis. Here's what a trial is. Trials are traffic jams, cars breaking down, fevers, airport delays, nagging bosses. I'll tell you guys my trial right now, and it's a real trial. It's not even a joke. My dog, 2.30 a.m. every night, she needs to go outside. And so at the peak of my sleep, She's waking me up, and if you ever want to know what, how to test your patience, have someone wake you up while you're hitting your REM sleep. And that's what my dog's been doing. It's a trial. But walls are very different than trials. Walls are very different. You guys remember we talked about David a few weeks ago. You might think that David's wall was Goliath, but his wall was not Goliath. You remember what happened? David steps up when no one else steps up. He's confident. He looks at Goliath and says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that defies the armies of the living God? He takes a stone and a sling and kills Goliath, cuts its head off, takes his sword and puts it as a trophy in his office. That is a confident man, full of God's power. The wall that David hits, though, is after the fact. See, after David slays Goliath, Saul is still considered king, and Saul is jealous of David. So David spends the next 13 years of his life running away from Saul, who is trying to kill him. He's hiding in caves, he's escaping from him, and he's asking God questions like, why is this happening? Where are my enemies that surround me? And he knows that he can't take retribution. That's what a wall is. A wall are the Israelites who are in Egypt, and God frees them and sets them free from Pharaoh, and they walk through the Red Sea, and there's this miraculous parting of the sea. You might think that the wall was the parting of the sea, but no, the wall is that after they are freed, they journey in the desert for 40 years. And they're going, wait a minute. You said you were setting us free. We were better off in Egypt. We're just wandering the desert over and over for 40 years. That's what a wall is. It's a crisis. It's a spiritual crisis that forces us to examine our faith. The Israelites were saying, God, Why are you doing this? We were better off over there. We had more food over there. A wall are the disciples who are going about their business and a man walks by and calls them to follow him and it's Jesus and he is God in flesh. The word come to life and he teaches like no one has ever taught before. He does miracle after miracle, raises the dead, opens the blind eyes, opens the deaf ears, heals the paralyzed, the lepers. He does all these amazing things and three years after his ministry begins, he's killed and thrown in a tomb. And their wall now, was this really the Messiah? We put our trust in this man for three years. We've seen him do amazing things, but here he is, dead in a tomb. Walls are different. Walls hit different than trials do. For you, here's what a wall might look like. It's a crisis that turns your world upside down and causes you to reexamine your faith. A wall for you might be a divorce. A wall for you might be the loss of a career. A wall for you might be the death of a close friend or a family member. 
a cancer diagnosis for you or a family member, a harmful church experience, we've all been there, a betrayal by a friend or a family member, a child that no longer speaks to you, a car accident, the inability to have a child, a desire to marry that remains unfulfilled. And it may not be a physical trauma. It may just be that you no longer feel joy in your walk with Jesus. These are the walls that you and I are bound to hit in this life. We begin to question the church. We begin to question God. We even begin to question ourselves. We discover for the first time when we hit these walls that our faith doesn't seem to work. We have more questions than answers as we hit the wall as the very foundation of our our faith is shaken. Now, one of two things happen when we hit a wall. Many people, they hit a wall, and they realize, this is not for me, I can't make sense of this, and so they leave the faith altogether. But Robert Gulick, in his research, he finds that 85% of Christians, they remain stuck at the wall and go back to doing what they've always done. But this time, their doing for God and learning about God is done out of confusion and pain. So they go to church, but they're confused. They are in this Bible studies, but they're feeling the pain. They lead churches, but they're not even sure if they fully believe everything that they're teaching. This is what it means to hit a wall and stay there, and it's why it's important for us to journey through the wall. Now, we're going to look at a man in the Bible that's hit a wall. Now, if there's anyone in the Bible who's hit a wall, his name is Job. Everybody say Job. Job. Well, we're going to look at a story. His story spans over 42 chapters in the Bible, and I'm going to summarize some of it. We're going to go from top to the end. And here's what we know about Job. Job was a very wealthy man. Here's what the Bible says. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, which were expensive back then, still expensive today, I bet, 1,000 oxen, 500 donkeys, along with a large staff of employees. Job is the equivalent of a modern-day billionaire. Imagine a man with a fleet of exotic vehicles, yachts, private planes, real estate properties, businesses, employees. And look what the Bible says about Job. Job chapter 1 verse 3. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Now, if you're going to make it into the Bible, that's how you make it. He was the greatest man. So he was a figure that everyone would have known in his land. Job was also a family man. He had 10 kids, seven sons, and three daughters. More importantly, Job was a believer in God. The Bible says that Job feared God and rejected evil. Now what happens in Job's journey of faith is that he hits a wall. He hits this crisis. His world is turned upside down. The unthinkable happens to Job. Enemies from other places come and attack his land, steal all his animals. A lightning strikes one of his homes. A tornado comes through. Everything is wiped out. His ten kids are killed. Everything that he had is completely gone. Job goes from riches to rags. He's diminished to poverty. He's got nothing left. Take a moment to think about what Job is going through. He had to bury 10 kids. Talk about a crisis. Everything that he's worked hard to earn, it's all gone. Just when you think that Job's journey couldn't get any worse, the Bible says that Job is covered in boils from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Here's a man that had everything. Now he sits in a dump with nothing covered with a skin disease. The Bible says that Job was found scraping his boils with a broken piece of pottery. Talk about a picture of riches to rags. But through it all, this is the important thing to note about Job. Job continues to worship God. But this begins to impact his family. Job has a wife and she can't take it anymore. 
She says, Job, you believe in this God, but all this stuff has happened to you. Are you sure this is what you want to do? Here's what she says, Job chapter 2, verse 9. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. And I'll tell you this morning why you should not tell your wife that you are talking like a foolish woman. Don't say that. But Job was wise. He says, can we accept the good from God and not trouble? Job hits this crisis in life. He's done all the things for God. But here's he's, here he's faced with this dilemma. Family's gone. His things are gone. He's at rock bottom. And what happens is that Job's friends come over. And they come, come over and they comfort him. But after the comforting is done, his friends and Job, they begin to have this conversation about why all this stuff happened to Job. And it's a long process, and we find this poetic dialogue in the book of Job. In fact, it's such a long process that it spans for the next 25 chapters of the book of Job. They're having this dialogue back and forth. And both of them come to their own conclusions as to why this happened to Job. So Job's friends, they come to this conclusion. They have to rationalize why this happened. And here's what they say. They say, Job, God is just... And everything that we see in this world is a result of God's justice. So that means you must have done something wrong for this to happen to you. I mean, you don't see our animals being killed and our kids dying, Job. This is happening to you, so God is just. So that means you must have done something wrong. So his friends blame him. This doesn't work out well for their friendship. We have the tendency to do this at times when we see people go through walls. We have a hard time trying not to rationalize the experience of other people. I've had people around me said, you must have done something wrong, which is why your son was born with Down syndrome, right? Don't be that person that has to rationalize everything. In some cases, we feel like we have to have all the right answers. It's one of the temptations for me as a pastor at times, but I hear people are going through things and I have to try and give them a prescription or an answer and sometimes I've learned that there is no answer. Sometimes when people are facing a crisis and a wall and they're trying to re-examine their faith, they don't need more scripture. They need someone that says, I know what you're going through and I believe that God is doing something in you that you may not know, but I get it, I'm here with you. That's what his friends say. But Job... Job also has his own perspective. So his friends say, God is just, this is happening, so that means you sinned. Job is going, wait a minute, I'm innocent. And we heard that from the scripture earlier that Job did not sin. Job says, I'm innocent. And everything that happens in this world is a result of God's justice. So if I'm innocent, yet this happens to me, that means God is not a just God. So two sides. God is just. You're a sinner. The other perspective that says, I'm not a sinner, and yet this happened to me, God is unjust. Does this sound familiar to how we rationalize things that happen in life? This is what many of us do when we hit a wall. We have to rationalize the wall. Why is this wall here? Who put it there? Why do I deserve this wall to be here? Why am I feeling stuck? Why am I facing a crisis? I can relate to Job and his friends. I bet you can too. We all want to know why when something doesn't go our way. I'll tell you a, a practical reason. The first Bible school I went to, 
it was called Christ for the Nations, and the joke was that we called it Bride for the Nations because everyone got married when you went to the school. It was like a matchmaking school, and we're all 18, 19, and everyone would just get married. And so my first year at the school, I broke up with my previous ex-girlfriend, and then my final year, I felt like it was ready for me to, you know, keep an eye out, you know, see who's out there. So there was this girl that I liked, and um, she was in our friend circle, and we would serve together at the school, and we, were, we would go out to eat as a group of friends together. And I realized as I started my first year at school, this is it, it's now or never. And I told my friends, I think I'm gonna go for it. And so I do something, and every, last service I felt the same thing. This is very embarrassing, so be, you know, just bear with me. So I tell my friends, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna show up at her dorm room, I'm just gonna ask her out. And so my friend's like, all right, let's do it. So we drive up to her dorm room, and her dorm room faces the parking lot. So here's the scene. My friends are in the parking lot. I'm outside of the car. I text her. She comes out. She's meeting me in the middle. Her friends are, like, peeking through the window and looking at the door, like, what's happening? So we have this whole audience watching us. And so I just say it. Say, I like you. I'd love to take this to the next step. And this girl had the audacity. This is how you know you're at Bible school to reject me using a Bible verse. <laughs> she pulls out Ruth chapter 2. She says, Alan, it's, a, it's an honor to find favor in your eyes, but I'm just not ready to date you. It's the worst answer that you could give someone because I don't know what that means. <laughs> is it because I'm 5'9 and a half and not 5'10? Like, what is it? Tell me what the reason is. I want to know why. We all want to know why things happen when we don't expect them to happen a certain way, right? God, why did I not get that job? God, why are my kids not listening? Why didn't I get that spouse? Why does this person not talk to me? Why did that person unfollow me on social media? The not knowing is really difficult for us. And here's why not knowing is so difficult for us. Not knowing makes us feel powerless. It makes us feel not in control. And here's one thing that we have to understand when it comes to our journey with Jesus. And to get to all that he has beyond the wall for us, we've got to be okay with feeling powerless. The stage after is one where you look inward and you wrestle with God and you begin to let go. Pete Scazzaro calls this a holy unknowing. Developing a holy unknowing. But we can only develop this holy unknowing if we journey through with the wall, not if we run away from the wall and the crisis that we face. And that's what Job does. So the book of Job is beautiful because it's all this poetic dialogue. So Job has his dialogue with his wife and then with his friends. Now Job, he turns his attention to God. And he wants to let God know how he feels about him. Job says, God, why are you doing this to me? I've done nothing wrong. I've done all the right things, yet you keep doing this to me. Look at one of the things that Job says, Job chapter 9, verse 29. He says, since I am already found guilty, why should I struggle in vain? Even if I washed myself with soap and my hands with cleansing powder, you would still plunge me into a slime pit so that even my clothes would detest me. Job is not in a healthy place when it comes to his relationship with God. He says, God, you make no sense. I've been blameless. I've done all the right things. I haven't even sinned. Even if I were to clean myself up, you would still throw me back in the mud, God. That's what it feels like you're doing. Job had made the assumption that because he did all the right things, that bad things would not happen to him. That he would never hit a wall. 
Job unconsciously made a deal with God that goes something like this. You and I, we make this deal with God at many times in our life. God, I obey. I do all the right things. I do my part. And then you do your part. And you bless me and you do not allow me to go through some of these crises in life. It's an exchange for us. I do, you give me. And God's trying to teach Job something deeper. He's doing a deeper work in Job, and it's a long process. Again, over 25 chapters where Job is processing and dialoguing. Now it comes time for God to respond to Job. Worship team, you guys can come on up as I get ready to wrap up. God now responds to Job. God begins to challenge Job. See, Job's claim was ultimately that God is unjust, right? Which pretty much means that, God, you don't know how to run the world. I mean, if you're supposed to be a just God and this happens to me, that means you don't know what, I'm, what you're doing. And God responds to Job. And he does this again in this poetic way. And here's what God asks Job. He says, Job, do you know what it's like to be in my place? Do you know what it's like to punish the wicked? He says, go ahead, Job, go ahead and do it. And he begins to use his example of two animals to make his point. The behemoth and Leviathan. And these were monstrous animals as described by the Bible. The importance is not what type of animals they were, but who God is in comparison to Job. And he talks about Leviathan, which is the sea monster. And here's what he says. He says, Job, let me tell you a little bit about Leviathan. He says, who dares open its mouth because it's ringed around with fearsome teeth? Its back has rows of shield tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between. They're joined and fast to one another. They cling together and they cannot be parted. God knows because he created them. Its snorting throws out flashes of light. Its eyes are like the rays of dawn. Flames stream from its mouth and sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours out from its nostrils as from a boiling pot over burning reeds. Its breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from its mouth. Strength resides in its neck. Its chest is as hard as a rock, as hard as millstone. When it rises up out of the water, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before it comes thrashing down. A sword that reaches Leviathan, it has no effect, Job. Nor does the spear or the dart or the javelin. And then he shifts to Job. And he says, Job, do you know how to take the sea monster out of the sea with an anchor? And to put a rope through his nostrils and to pierce it and tie it down so that it asks you for mercy. Can you make the sea monster a pet like a little bird, Job? It's very poetic. And all of it to show Job, Job, you have no idea what justice and power means, yet you condemn me so that you can justify yourself. God confronts Job, and this a lot of times happens when we begin to journey through the wall with God. There comes a point where we're confronted with the realness of who God is, that we understand that he's beyond our comprehension. I love how Tim Keller says it. He says this, if you have a God infinite and powerful enough for you to be angry at for allowing evil, then you must at the same time have a God infinite enough to have sufficient reasons for allowing that evil. 
He's saying you can't just say God is big and mighty and all-powerful and all-knowing when things are going your way. And when stuff doesn't go your way, you say, God, you're small and you don't know how to do this. This is essentially what God shows Job. Job, you have no idea. You have no idea. And here's what I love about the book of Job. There's no clear explanation of the why. There's no three-point sermon that says, here's what Job went through and here's three ways to overcome it. There's no rationalizing it. We just see the story unfolding before us. And when we begin to journey, when we hit that wall through it to the next stage that God has for us, we understand that God is beyond the grasp of every concept that I have of him. That he's not fully comprehensible. God is not an object that you can determine or possess or master or command or out. The point of the journey that Job is not on was not to get all the answers. It was not to rationalize. But it was to journey through a wall that required that Job would let go of power and control. To develop this holy unknowing. And this holy unknowing removes the assumption that we need to have a good reason for all the things that happen in this world. A holy unknowing removes the assumption that bad things won't happen to good people. A holy unknowing removes the assumption that following Jesus means that we can have life our way. And for many of us, it's difficult to get to the other side of the wall because we need to know why. We need to keep control and power over the situations that we face. So we go back to doing life the way we always did, hoping that things change, but what's truly required for things to change is for you to let go, for you to process with God. Say, God, you might be doing something here that I have no idea about, but I will continue to enter into this relationship with you. Will you reveal yourself to me as I enter it with you? When we begin to do that, I'm telling you, I've gone through this in my own life, you begin to see God totally different. So Job, the last dialogue that we see, responds to God's confrontation. Here's what he says. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. The most beautiful line in the book of Job, Job finally comes to this place. He says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Job has journeyed through the wall. His walk with God, his understanding of who God is, is totally transformed. Not because he has all the answers, but he knows that God is up to something. He knows God in a way that he's never known him before. And Job is ultimately a blessed man because he's not the same person. The person, the church, the people that go through the wall are people who have come to trust a powerful God and have come to acknowledge their powerlessness when we face crisis in life. It's the beauty of our faith with Jesus. That despite what's happening one day, everything will be okay. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but there is coming a day 
when there are no more walls, no more crying, no more tears, no more losses, but there is a day when Jesus will reunite with us and all things will be made right and he will redeem us and the earth and the cosmos and we will be united with him with total peace and comfort and joy. And our duty when it comes to our walk with Jesus is to hold on in the crisis, hold on and journey through the wall knowing that one day God will make everything okay. A journey through the wall means that we no longer tell God what to do or how to do life. A journey through the wall has us asking less questions and listening more. And I love what God does. God actually responds to Job's friends. They didn't get off the hook. God looks at Job's friends and says, you have spoken wrongly of me. You have not spoken rightly of me. In other words, remember both of them had opinions, but God only looks at Job's friends. In other words, God is saying, what Job has said of me is actually okay. Because Job never sinned in his questioning and his doubts, and his frustration. All he did was bring that to me. God is teaching us it's okay to journey with God, to wrestle with God, to ask difficult questions, to ask why. It's important for us to ask why, but it's more important for us to come out of that saying, God, even if I don't know the answer to why, I will trust you because you are God. I know that doesn't satisfy what you're going through. But there is this holy unknowing, this beautiful deep work that God does when we can get to that point in our walk with God. There's a purging that God does in our lives where he removes the junk, where he removes our understanding of who he is and what it means to walk with him. And out of that, we come out of it people with a greater level of brokenness. The same God who gives is the same God that can take away. But despite what we're seeing, God is still working. You come out of the wall into the next stages with a deeper ability to wait on God. You're no longer impatient. You come out of it with a greater detachment from the world. When Paul says, for me to die is gain, he's not attached to this world. You come out of the wall with a different purpose in life. You come out of the wall being able to look back and help others journey through the wall. The best part of Job's story, at the end of it, God restores everything that Job had lost twice as much as he had before. Twice the resources. He has more kids again. His life is a blessing again, not because Job did something and God blessed him, but because of God's generosity and grace towards him. And then, God calls Job a friend. There is this intimacy, this deep work that God does in our lives when we journey through him in life, through the crisis that we face. Do not run away. Do not just have a surface level understanding of what it means to journey in this life. The book of Job teaches us that God is good, all-powerful, in control, yet we live in a world that is broken and sinful, and both of those can coexist because in the middle of the brokenness, God still walks with us, and all of it will be redeemed and restored at one point. What would it look like for you and I to live the rest of our lives journeying through the wall, knowing 
that what God has called us to is a life of surrender so that we can ultimately love God and love others out of a deep compassion and out of a deep well of being with him alone. I love what Jesus does because Jesus also journeys through the wall. We're going to go into a time of taking communion together. If you have your cups, uh, the cups are in front of you on your seats or the seats that you're sitting on. If If you're watching at home, you can gather some bread and some juice. Jesus goes out to the Mount of Olives for his final moments on earth, and he knows what's coming up ahead. He knows that Judas, one of his disciples, is about to betray him. He knows that they're about to arrest him and accuse him and mock him and torture him, and then they're going to take him to a cross and kill him. And he kneels down and he prays, and he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. He's processing the troubles, the wall that he's about to go through. But look what he says after that. Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. It's the beauty of our journey with God. And it says, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Jesus journeys to the cross. And because of the finished work of the cross, you and I, are very different from Job. Job did not have a mediator. New Testament teaches us that there is one mediator between God and humanity and his name is Jesus. And because he went on that cross and died for you and I, and because he was buried for three days and because he rose again, you and I have direct access to God the Father. We can come to him just as we are and say, God, this is what I'm dealing with. I trust in you. Thank you for the new life that I have in you. And when we take communion together week in and week out, it's the most important thing that we can do because we remind ourselves of the finished work of Jesus and how it impacts the way that we live right here and right now. So that bread, would you take that bread? Represents the body of Christ that was broken for you. Would you take and eat together? And the cup that represents the blood of Christ that was shed for you, the new covenant between God and his people, would you take that together? Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you walk with us in our deepest, darkest moments. That when we hit the walls in life, the crisis in life that flips our world upside down and causes us to ask some questions, cause some doubts, that you stretch out a hand for us to walk with you. We thank you that we can journey through the issues and crises we face in life with you. We thank you. We pray for those in the room that are going through their own walls, their own doubts, their own questions, their own issues, their own questions about who you are. And as we see from the story of Job, there may not be a clear answer today and in this moment. But would you help us, Holy Spirit, through the power of your strength to take that next step, to just simply say, I am trusting you because I am powerless and you are powerful. And if I believe in you as a God, there must be something that you are doing in my life. Would you help each and every single one of us to just take that simple next step, to journey with you through the wall. Through your spirit, may we be strengthened in all that we do. We thank you, Lord, for who you are. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.